Well, we all know that saying. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. An idiom dictionary defined this saying to mean that copying someone is flattering because it shows that you want to be like that person. It shows that you want to be like that person. Well, remember back with me. Back to the late 80s and the early 90s. Not that long ago, really, right? Where there was this successful, this very successful ad campaign from Gatorade. And it epitomized what we're saying. I bet some of you, if you think for a second, might know where this is going. There's a string of all these commercials that included this very catchy song. Well, let's watch one. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. could be like Mike. You know, there was not a person who dribbled a basketball in the 80s or 90s who didn't want to be Michael Jordan. And being a Chicago sports fan, having MJ on my team, what a great thing that was. What he did on the basketball court had never been seen before. It was totally amazing. And for all of you uh, Cleveland Cavalier fans out there, I need to apologize. I'm sorry for bringing back to you that Terrible memory of that last second shot of Michael Jordan over Craig Elo that doomed the Cavs to their continued failures and brought uh, the Bulls up to their wonderful status. Anyway, anyway. Uh, that, that, that commercial was great advertising. It really was great advertising because it captured a reality that resonates within each one of us. You see, there's something about us that naturally looks to other people and desires to imitate them. We naturally look to other people to learn from them. We so vividly see this in our children. When they are young, they want to be just like us. They want to wear our clothes. They want to be whatever our careers are. They want to become this great athlete or this superhero or a princess. This is very normal and natural and healthy. Children also naturally grow out of wanting to totally imitate someone else and start developing their own identity. But we never really stop imitating people. Even as adults, we imitate people. If there's a person at your work that is really excelling, you try to learn from them. If your favorite Christian scholar just read this great book, you want to go read that book too. If you're into golf or cooking and you you watch TV, you try to learn from the pros. See, we try to learn from others to better ourselves. And that's a good thing. 
Imitation is a great way to learn. I can so remember taking communion for the first time at my church, at First Baptist Church in Freeport, Illinois, as a junior in high school. I was sitting up front, uh, and there was, there was nobody in front of me. And there was nobody beside me. So what do you do? It seemed like everyone else knew what was going on, and it seemed like everyone would have noticed me if I messed things up. So what I did is I watched Pastor Phillips, and I did exactly what he did when he did it. I imitated him. To this very day, the imprint of watching Pastor Phillips take communion lives on in the way that I take communion. His deep and earnest and heartfelt personal prayer was so evident on his face and in his life, it was fascinating to watch him talk to God. You could tell he was having a real conversation with God, that he had a real relationship with God that was significant. I learned by imitating Pastor Phillips. Paul says four times in the scriptures to be imitators of him. I would love to have been directly taught by Paul, by his words, by his life. We have an awful lot in the scriptures from him of his teaching and his life so we can imitate. But Paul's focus wasn't on people to become little Pauls. He wasn't trying to make clones of himself. The great apostle Paul knew that he was but a signpost pointing the way. He wanted them and us to learn from him so that we could better become imitators of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. He wanted us to follow the example of Christ. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 7, challenges his readers, and it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. It was a good and biblical thing for me to learn from and to imitate the faith of Pastor Phillips. Every single pastor that I've ever had or served with has taught me ways to more fully follow Christ through their life and their words. We should imitate the faith of our spiritual leaders. Hebrews 6.12 says that we should, imitate, we should be imitators of those whose faith and patience have inherited their promises. We should be all the imitators, learners of those around us who are stronger or more mature in the faith. It's a biblical principle that the younger needs to learn from the older. But the distinction is not only there on age. It's the younger in faith should learn from those more mature in faith. We more readily in our culture you know, like to use words like mentor or apprentice to describe the way we learn from a spiritually mature person. We even have this great Christian word that we have to describe the process. We call it discipleship. We call it discipleship because the goal is always about helping the other person grow in their relationship with Christ so that they could become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word imitate in another way. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul commends the whole church in Thessalonica saying, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God and Christ Jesus that were in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul is commending this whole church for 
following the example of the churches in Judea in dealing with being persecuted for their faith. Even churches can imitate, can learn from, can follow the example of other churches and how they have followed Christ. So we're challenged to imitate godly men and women of the Bible. We're challenged to imitate our spiritual leaders. We're challenged to imitate spiritually mature people in our lives. We are challenged to imitate other churches and learning from them. But none of those people want us to imitate them, to become like them. They want us to learn from them so that we can become more like Christ. The point is to imitate, to learn, to follow, to be mentored so that we can more fully be conformed to the image of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, the pattern, the design, and the model that we are trying to become is Christ. But, you know, even with that, the point isn't to imitate Christ like in some way becoming Him. We have to become like Christ in the way that He wants us to be. That's important. Now, that's a pretty obvious point, but it's a very significant point. None of us are called to be Christ. But all of us are called to be like Christ. We each have our own callings. We each have our own giftedness. We each have our own personalities. We each have our our own special creation and unique mix by God. The point of becoming like Christ is never to create some monolithic, uniform sameness. The point of becoming like Christ is to celebrate the variety, the colorfulness of God's masterful creation and fulfilling God's calling and purpose in your life. We are called to imitate Christ, but your imitation and my imitation are going to be totally different. Your expression of Christ-likeness is going to be different than my expression of Christ-likeness. Now, the principles and truth are the same, because we get those from the Scriptures. The pattern is the same, because that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the mix of all that put together and who God made us and, and that makes our expression of our Christ-likeness uniquely our own. Yes, we're to imitate and to learn and to follow biblical characters and spiritual leaders and spiritual mentors and even other godly influences on in our life. But they, we are to make those expressions our own, our own wonderful uniqueness in Christ. The question we should regularly be asking and answering is, what does God want me to do? How does God want to express Christ through me? At home with my kids or my spouse, at school with my friends, at work with my coworkers, even in the quietness of our own selves, in all the different roles and all the different responsibilities that we have in our lives, how does God want to express Christ? Through me. Well, today we're going to look at three biblical principles that can help us better imitate God in our lives, the lives that He has called us to. So follow along in your scriptures here in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, as we continue our study there, starting at verses 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexually, immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The first biblical principle mentioned in our passage is love. We're supposed to walk in love. Ephesians 5.1 says that we're supposed to be imitators of God. A better way of translating that is we're supposed to become imitators of God. Imitating our Father is not something that we are. It is something that we are becoming. It is our goal with the never-ending process. We are to imitate God as beloved children. John 1.12 says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, at that moment, we were adopted into the family of God, with God as our Father and we as his children. We are the objects of God's love. We are his children. He says to each one of us today, I love you. And as beloved children, you know what we say back? I love you too. You see, as believers, as children of God, we want to look and act like our Father. As as any beloved child of their beloved Father would. We want to imitate our Father. And that's a good thing. As we imitate our Father, the first characteristic mentioned is love. We're to walk in love. Walk in love literally means that we should be continually living our lives in, out of, and through love. It is a command of continual action. Walk in love. It seems like we're regularly coming up to this word love. It might start you thinking that maybe this word love is important. The word love is used 15 times in this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians only takes up four pages in my Bible. It has 155 verses. It's shorter than one chapter in Psalms, Psalm 119. The word love is used in all six chapters. And yet love is only a sub-theme in the letter. In Ephesians it says that God predestined us in his love in 1.4. Says Paul commends uh, the church in Ephesus for their love for each other in verses 1 15. In 2 4, it says, God's love for us is described as the foundation of truth that brings our salvation. It says, because of the great love in which he loved us. In 3 17 and 19, Paul is praying for them that they would be rooted and grounded in love that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. In chapter 4, Paul applies love in three specific ways. He says that they are to bear with one another in love, that they are to speak the truth in love, they're to build up the church body in love. 
In chapter 5, we're commanded here to walk in love as Christ has loved us. In chapter 5, verse 25 and 28 and 33, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Finally, the letter ends with love. It says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. For God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all, all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. See, Paul is saying here at the very end of the book, the very last sentence, that our love for Jesus is supposed to be sincere, pure, undying love, incorruptible. That's the type of love that we're supposed to be walking in. That's the type of love that we're supposed to be living out in our daily lives. A sincere, pure, undying love for Jesus. Love is the essence of God's nature. It's the essential character of a true believer. You see, love is not just simply one aspect of our relationship with God. It's the heart of our relationship with God. It's the very part of our relationship with God that holds everything together. Colossians 3.14 says, And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, according to Jesus now, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us? That's right. We should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Now, what is the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right. Love God, love your neighbor. Greatest commandment. Second greatest command. Now fill in the, the statement with me as I read it here from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Right. Just as I have loved you, you also are too. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen to these amazing, powerful words from John Uh, Chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. It says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And get this now. I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will disclose myself to the one I love. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. I want Jesus to manifest himself to me. I want him to disclose himself to me. I want the Godhead to make my life their home. Don't you? Well, how does that happen? What do these verses say? It says, walk in love. Loving God at such a level that our obedience flows out of our love for him, from the depth of our relationship with him. Then Jesus, and all of his love for us, will do what he said, and he'll disclose himself to us, and he'll make our lives his habitation. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is the very first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Remember? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The very first distinguishing mark that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of a believer is love. 1 John 4, 7-12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's an amazing statement, that last statement. Did you hear that? No one has ever seen God. Has anyone in here ever seen God? None of us have ever seen God. Do you want to see God? Do you know what this verse is saying? Do you want to see him? Do you know how you see him? Do you know how you experience God? We experience God when we love one another. We see God at work when we love one another. We see God healing the brokenhearted. We see God restoring the estranged. We see God forgiving the lost. We see God at work when we walk in love. Folks, the very fabric of the new self that we put on in Christ is woven in love. It is literally the string of our Christian lives that holds everything together, that makes everything beautiful, that gives us the strength to carry on. Walk in love, daily live in love. We could list many, many more passages about the fact of love. Hopefully that fact has hit home with us in these passages, that love is an essential characteristic of a true believer. When people think of you, do they think of love? When you evaluate yourself as loving God and loving others, highest priorities in your life. If God's love saved you, is God's love now being perfected in you? You see, the greatest, most demonstrable way that we can imitate God is to walk in love, to daily live our lives in love with God and loving one another. Another way we imitate God is by living a life of sacrifice. Love and sacrifice are closely connected. Jesus connected them together in John 15, 13, where he said, Greater love has no one than this, but someone lay down his life for his friends. One of the very fundamental expressions of love is sacrifice. Love is selflessness. The opposite of love isn't so much of hate as it is selfishness and apathy, a lack of concern and indifference. Love is not inactive. Love is active and it's all the way to the point of sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice 
to God. This verse tells us to walk in love with the same kind of love that Jesus loved us with. In love, Jesus willingly gave himself up for us. He took our place. He took our punishment for our sins. He stepped forward in love and freely offered himself to God to be our sacrifice. This verse describes Jesus' offering and sacrifice as fragrant. In almost 50 places in the Old Testament, an offering is, that is acceptable to God is described as fragrant to him. For example, in Exodus 29 and verse 18, 25, and 41, it describes an acceptable offering to God as a pleasing aroma to God. When Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for us, God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. God was pleased even through the darkness of the crucifixion. He was pleased to accept the gift of the sacrifice of his son. And because God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, we who believe are now accepted by God. Jesus' sacrifice has made all the difference. No one has ever loved us so abundantly, so freely, so fully, because no one has ever sacrificed so much for you and me. We are called to be imitators of God by walking in love and by offering our lives as a sacrifice to God. Makes you think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the application is clear. Are you living a life of spiritual worship to God? Are you presenting your life seven days a week to God as a living sacrifice? Is your life a pleasing aroma to God? Is all on your altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. To become imitators of Jesus, our lives need to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to our God. Well, the last way to imitate God mentioned in our passage this morning is a negative. We're to be like God by putting off all impurity. We are to imitate our God and live a life of purity. Follow along as I read again verses 3 through 6. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Oh, folks, these are powerful words. Powerful words. We are called to purity. These words are not just empty words that can be simply disregarded. God is pure and holy. There's not one hint of any sin or impurity in him. And God is our standard. God is the mold in which a true Christian is becoming. If God is totally pure and holy, and if God is the standard by which we must conform ourselves, and since we are commanded to imitate our Father God, 
We too must strive to live a life of purity and holiness, separated from the sins of this world and separated to the righteousness of God. Every type of sexual morality, all forms of impurity and greed are supposed to be so foreign to true believers that there isn't even a hint of it. It can't even be named among us in our own lives or in our church. But we face the same challenge that the readers of this letter first had. You see, we live in a sin-soaked world full of immorality and impurity and greed. The TV and the radio and the internet and pop culture is full of impurity and crude joking and foolish talk. To our culture, it's not only acceptable, it's funny. See, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed is something to be laughed at. Well, verse 5 makes it clear that God's not laughing. To God, impurity is not a laughing matter at all. But instead, he is holding us accountable for our actions. Yet God's amazing grace is even more powerfully forgiving. The Bible is full of those who have been sexually immoral, impure, and greedy, and even idolatrous. And they have come to God, and they've been forgiven and accepted and restored. The point Paul is making isn't that anyone who does such thing has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. No, the point that he is making is that anyone who is defined by those things has no inheritance in the kingdom. Verse 6 says that such people, the sons of disobedience, that they will experience the wrath of God. You see, true believers are not defined by their sin, but by their relationship with God. That's the distinguishing mark of a believer's life. They are part of a forgiven family of God. They might have done those things, but they are, are now not the true characteristics of who they are or their new nature. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds the believers that they were once sons of disobedience. He uses those exact same words. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. But even when they were dead in their transgressions and sins, they were made alive again in Christ Jesus. For by grace they were saved through faith. So are we. See, if you have done or even are doing sexually impure things, if you have done or even now indulging in the filthy, crude joking of this world, God is calling out to you this morning and offering something special to you. Cleansing. He's offering forgiveness and hope. Restoration and wholeness. See, the Bible is clear that God's wrath will come down on those who reject the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins. And the Bible is also clear that God's love and grace and forgiveness is lavished on all who turn to Jesus, accept him as his substitute for our sins and out of that new relationship now with God to love him with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. If you've never put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you've never accepted the truth that Christ died on your behalf, taking the penalty of your sin, that offering, that sweet savor of aroma that was pleasing to God so that you could have this real relationship with the one true God, then today is your day to make that decision. Today is your day 
to come to Jesus and to start a new life with him. Well, Christian, if your imitating of God in purity is not going so well, if even perhaps only you know and that, that there's a hint, there's an opening of impurity in your life, don't be deceived, the scripture says. Don't be deceived into thinking it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. You need to come to Christ for forgiveness and healing and strength to change. Take it seriously and get the help, the encouragement and the accountability that you need to change. Today is your day to start the process of taking off that old man, the renewing of your mind and putting on the new self which is made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, Charlie Chaplin, many of you know who he was. He was a huge movie star in a silent movie era. One of the byproducts of his immense popularity was these look-alike contests that sprung up all around the country. Even the young, up-and-coming actor, Bob Hope, entered such a contest in Cleveland, Ohio, and won. Although the event has been embellished through the years, Chaplin himself entered a look-alike contest in San Francisco. Amazingly, Chaplin failed to even make it into the finals. Well, how about us? How do we look? If we entered a look-alike contest for a Christian, if we entered a look-alike contest for a loving, sacrificial, pure follower of God, an imitator of Jesus Christ, would we make the finals? How are we doing on imitating God? How are you doing and becoming like your Father. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It, It pierces between the bone and the marrow. It gets right into our spirit, right into our soul, and it challenges us. And boy, has this passage done that. And we thank you for that. We open up our hearts and our souls, our minds, our attitudes, to the work of your spirit now and in the communion service. Lord, because we don't want to be the same people that walked in this building. We have no desire for that. We want to be different people that walk out of here. We want to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We want to be imitating you. We want to be more deeply following, more closely obedient, more deeply committed and in love with you. And we thank you that you give us that opportunity this day, right now. And we thank you for that. We engage into that. In Jesus' name, amen.